Welcome to Episode 72 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thank you for joining us. We are lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. And I'm joined today by our guest, uh, uh, James Baker, the general counsel for the FBI. Uh, uh, Jim has a, a remarkable career in national security law, uh, served for many years in the criminal division, was head of the uh, Office of Intelligence Policy Review for seven years, uh, or six, uh, which is the... Uh, uh, office that did all of the FISA, uh, 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 applications. Uh, uh, then went to the Kennedy School and to Verizon to do national security law, uh, and came back at the beginning of the Obama administration to, uh, uh, work with the Deputy Attorney General on all of his national security oversight, uh, uh, before finally, uh, joining the FBI as general counsel just last year, right? Yes, that's right. And also, uh, I was, uh, at uh, Bridgewater Associates for two years. Oh, terrific. Yeah. yeah. Uh, oh, with, uh, Jim Comey. Uh, yes, he was there at the time. <laughs> okay. All right. Oh, exciting. Uh, okay. Uh, it, uh, it's a pleasure to have you, uh, involved. Uh, Michael Vadis, uh, is also here, formerly with the FBI and the Justice Department, now a partner in Steptoe's New York office. Uh, Alan Cohn is here, uh, formerly with DHS, where he was the Assistant Secretary for Strategy, Planning, Analysis, Risk, uh, uh, and uh, held the record for longest title uh, on the panel. Uh, and I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, and also a record holder for returning to Steptoe to practice law more times than any other lawyer. So why don't we get started? Uh, um, free speech is taking a Beating, uh, just a beating from foreign courts and foreign lawmakers. Uh, uh, the uh, uh, European Court of Human Rights endorsed liability for intermediaries. That is to say, if uh, people file comments on your website uh, and they're rude enough, uh, uh, you can be held liable for uh, uh, for the comments. And that was the European Court of Human Rights making that determination. Uh, um, uh, the Russians have. Uh, uh, the people who invented the memory hole have now embraced it with enthusiasm. Uh, um, uh, they have decided to take the European right to be forgotten a step or two further to say uh, uh, politicians can take advantage of the right to be forgotten. Uh, uh, you know, look for Putin's wife to disappear anytime soon. Uh, and uh, and then the French have decided that uh, they are not satisfied with a right to be forgotten that uh, applies to French law, but uh, they want it to apply uh, uh, to .com uh, uh, so that um, Americans can't read about things that the French want forgotten. Um, Michael, you uh, did a detailed analysis of the European Court of Human Rights thing. Uh, um, a, what's the lesson to be drawn from that decision? Well, you know, that's the only one that I found really surprising. The, uh, the French decision that the right to be forgotten really extends to all domains, not just uh, Google.fr or other national domains. That, that doesn't strike me as particularly surprising. Um, but the European uh, Court of Human Rights one is uh, because they looked at it largely as just a, a free speech uh, issue. Did, did the intermediary uh, website have a, f- a free speech right to be immune from liability? And it didn't really look at it directly as an issue of uh, immunity under the e-commerce directive. And I think if the case had been before the European Court of Justice, it probably would have come out differently because, in this case, the website took down 
the negative comments immediately when they were contacted by the, the person uh, who was the subject of the, uh, the nasty comments. Uh, and uh, the case law under the ECJ, I think, um, really was on the website side under the e-commerce directive, uh, but the directive just was not the focus of the, the human rights court for, for some reason, and I think that was really the key. So the the question was whether this was a violation of the website's human rights uh, uh, imposing liability for uh, allowing the comments to to be posted. Exactly, because uh, the Estonian Supreme Court had said that uh, the website could be liable, and and the European Court of Human Rights said this is not a violation of of the website's free speech rights because uh, the, the free speech right comes with a caveat that is. You know, you have the right to free speech as long as you don't infringe on other people's rights. And there's a, you know, that whole, uh, nebulous concept of proportionality and balancing rights of, of one person against another. And they said, uh, in this case, yeah, the, the website has the right to free speech, but it's also got to respect other people's rights not to have nasty things said about them. And, and, uh, the upshot is, you know, you read this decision and you think, wow, if I'm a website, I've got to constantly monitor what people say now. Uh, and I've got to take affirmative, proactive steps to take down nasty comments and not just wait for someone to complain and then take them down. And that's, that, you know, if websites follow that rule, it would work a sea change in the way uh, websites handle user-generated content. Well, I think the I think the Russian uh, law is somewhat similar. They say there's a right to be forgotten, and we'll just tell you what we want forgotten, and you figure out a way to make sure that no search terms ever turn it up. But uh, uh, you know, we want Putin's wife forgotten, uh, and we don't care whether you you, you search for her by first name and uh, 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 her uh, maiden name, or uh, by using the term Putin's wife. But you just don't. Uh, we just don't want her to appear, and that's the right to be forgotten. Uh, um, so it seems to me all of these things are designed to force people into – force companies into applying standards more broadly than uh, the law necessarily uh, um, actually applies. And they're going to end up uh, interpreting those rules without any risk of liability. They're going to interpret those rules in an aggressive way uh, uh, because – being aggressive about interpreting them saves them from liability, and uh, uh, being more cautious exposes them to potential liability. Yeah, and the other striking thing about the Russian law is that, or you know, proposed law at this point, is that it includes public figures and matters of public interest. Under the, the European decision, if you are a public figure or if the, the something that's published about you concerns a matter of public interest, you you probably don't have the right to be forgotten, and the website can, or the search engine can leave it up. Uh, but under Russian law, those are not exceptions. You, you, you know, you can be a politician. If someone says something, uh, if, if the Russian court deems it, you know, sufficiently irrelevant or uh, distant in the past, it can still be taken down. Well, if you if you if you adopt the Baker view of privacy law, which is that eventually it comes to be so meaningless that it only helps the rich uh, and privileged, uh, the Russians just got there a little faster than the rest of us. Uh, uh, that's where the right to be forgotten is going to end up with uh, with all of this. Uh, um, but let me—I I, I, promised that I would let you guys talk about the Astros getting hacked. Uh, uh, so uh, since I, as I've said, I'm still not sure exactly what sport they play. 
I thought I'd let Michael and Alan kick the uh, uh, the hacking uh, uh, of the teams around. So this is baseball. Thank you. Uh, right, Good. Right. Okay. Been around for a little while. Um, and, and this isn't so much a, a sophisticated hacking operation that's going into the annals of, uh, of hacking as much as it is corporate theft enabled by sloppy use of old passwords. Um, and so you had the Cardinals personnel looking over a master list of passwords used by the, a former Cardinals executive who set up their Moneyball-like system called Redbird, uh, and used those passwords to get into the Astros version of the system, uh, which they called Ground Control. And so it's it's basically a lesson in, you know, know where your crown jewels are and how they're protected. Change your passwords, yeah. you know, use two-factor authentication. Um, but also, and and Michael could could talk to this, uh, don't hack your sports opponents uh, or <laughs> rather than just getting a slap on the wrist from the league, you, you can actually go to jail for, for this. I, 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 there was all this speculation that maybe this wasn't a serious crime. This is a felony, isn't it, uh, Michael? Uh, it is, and you know, even though it's baseball, I, I still think we're going to find the hand of Bill Belichick or Tom Brady behind all this. You know, there just can't be a sports channel that they're not involved in. Yeah, they were they they were they, they were hacking the system to make sure that the uh, the balls had uh, were were dead balls. <laughs> we're covering up evidence. Who knows? No, but in all seriousness, it, it, this is a potential felony. You know, it's straight unauthorized access to. A computer system um, to take information. Uh, you know, it's not clear how this is going to end, but um, the FBI is investigating. So I, I suppose Jim's the one who could tell us about it, but I'm sure he can't. Yeah, I, I bet he. I bet he's got nothing to say about it. So. No comment. <laughs> so Michael, so Michael made an earlier point. We were talking about this before that that, and he was just referencing a, a computer fraud uh, and abuse act violation, but it could also be a uh, a theft of trade secrets, although. Timothy Geiner over at um, at TechDirt made an interesting point that under the the Major League Baseball's antitrust status, if the Cardinals and the Astros are both part of the same overall entity, like two McDonald's franchises, can one actually steal trade secrets from the other? Oh so, yeah, it's it's really a, a matter for interleague or intraleague uh, discipline rather than uh, the invocation of trade secrets. So we have a multi-pronged legal question of the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, this trade secret question. Uh, you know, are people going to go to jail? What's the league going to do? So an interesting space legally, if, even if it isn't an interesting space from a computer hacking perspective. Very cool. Very cool. Okay. Um, the uh, to, to bring this back to Jim one more time, uh, there has been a fair amount of criticism over uh, the FBI's disclosures of its uh, Stingray, uh, uh, use of Stingray and local law enforcement use of Stingray, and also um, suggestions that the FBI's uh, Air Force uh, has been um, too aggressive in allowing aerial surveillance. Uh, and I thought I'd uh, ask Jim to address address uh, both of those questions. Um, is there more that the FBI can do in disclosing what it's doing in the air or with stingrays? And are they, is that the same thing or is it uh, really two separate questions? Well, thanks, Stuart, and thanks for the opportunity to be here. Yeah, I greatly fine. appreciate it. And, uh, and thanks to your audience for uh, spending time listening to me. So uh, on stingray and, uh, and cell site, uh, we refer, refer to it as cell site simulators. Right. Um, and on the uh, use of aircraft. So generally, look, I mean, the FBI conducts its activities consistent with the Constitution and laws of the United States and always pursuant to Department of Justice, meaning Attorney General guidelines. 
as well as a, a very extensive set of FBI guidelines. And so there, when, there, there, there wouldn't be much legal objection to flying planes over an urban area certainly to look for people using binoculars, using cameras. So those are kind of pretty standard tools that uh, you wouldn't expect would require warrants or elaborate uh, legal clearance. Yeah, I mean, I don't know what the uh, – what I, I can't explain the, the uh, rash of uh, uh, news stories about this recently. I don't exactly know why the, the public or the press focuses on things. I'm not going to try to figure that out sitting here. But I think you've right. got aircraft – uh, over public areas, collecting information to some degree, and then in some instances we've combined that with the use of cell site simulators, and so you've got sort of this uh, perfect storm of, of events. But, but so that, it, the plus, plus, you know, the FBI had tried to keep its ownership of the planes uh, out of the record by not changing the uh, uh, the tail numbers, if I remember right, or at least the registration, well, and that, that led people to think, oh, it must be really cool and super secret. The program is not classified. The program, we, we do take steps to try to protect the identity of the, uh, of the aircraft and the identity of the people, mm-hmm. uh, to protect it in a, for a variety of investigative reasons. Uh, the same way that we, you know, go out of our way to protect uh, our agents when they're working in an undercover capacity, that kind of thing. So, um, uh, in order to maintain the effectiveness of the tool as a general matter. But as I say, we're, we, we do this pursuant to the law, pursuant to guidelines established by the Department of Justice, pursuant to internal regulation with oversight, uh, and we make sure that we're, we're doing these activities in furtherance of a, legitim- a legitimate investigative interest, not for collecting information on the you know, lawful First Amendment activities of Americans. Are you expecting uh, legislation on this? I know there have been a couple of hearings. Uh, is, there, is there any indication that there will be you know, appropriations, limitations, or anything like that? There's great interest in that, but, uh, and I know that a number of, uh, of, uh, sort of limitations have been put forward in a variety of different ways recently with respect to appropriations. I've not heard one on this, but that doesn't mean uh, okay. that it's not out there. But I, I don't recall one off the top of my head about this particular activity. All right. Well, uh, uh, moving along, I, uh, the, the, I should say, Supreme Court decision just today. We'll only touch on it. Uh, the, the Los Angeles versus Patel Supreme Court five to four said that uh, it uh, um, was going to strike down a Los Angeles ordinance saying that the police uh, had could come in. Essentially, that uh, hotel keepers had to keep. Uh, guest registration uh, records available, and the police could come in and look at the registration uh, whenever they liked, uh, and the uh, uh, Supreme Court said, I'm sorry, you can't do that without a warrant. You can't uh, um, demand warrantless access to the business records of uh, a, a, a particular hotel keeper. Uh, um, not sure how much that really means for the federal government, but it does suggest that uh, uh, at least five justices are inclined not to be particularly uh, forgiving of um, uh, uh, of the uh, uh, police access to uh, to information so it probably is another bad sign for some of the um, uh, uh, Smith against Maryland uh, bulk collection you don't have a, a privacy interest uh, kind of uh, uh, position that we've seen uh, up to now so that's my guess about what that means but it probably is not going to change uh, federal law enforcement anytime soon uh, one additional item uh, the White House uh, um, has announced that by the end of 2016, Every 
federal website will use SSL, TLS encryption, uh, HTTPS uh, uh, encryption, uh, uh, as uh, this is the uh, CIO uh, office uh, ordering that. Uh, Alan, did you have anything to do with it when you were uh, uh, setting DHS policy? I did not. Uh, I did not. Yeah, I, I, I have to say... This might be the dumbest thing that uh, the CIO's office has has done. Uh, it's just pure privacy theater. Uh, SSL encryption protects people from it protects communications from eavesdropping on the way while while the communication is making its way to the website that you're communicating with. And so what you could see is what is this person saying and doing with the US government? And there are times when that's highly important, but there's lots of sites where Nobody cares that you went there, and certainly nobody cares what you did when you were there. And the kind of intercept that you're likely to encounter, at least in the United States, Americans talking to the uh, uh, their government, uh, uh, the only people who could be intercepting that as a routine matter are going to be either criminals who have somehow taken over an ISP, which strikes me as unlikely, or the U.S. government which, you know, also can get it by going and reading the server communication. So I, I, I don't understand what the point of this is. Uh, you know, I, I think that's a real question. You, you hit on it at the beginning about the fear. I think it's just an indication, unfortunately, of a lack of just a broader integrated approach to this problem. You, to the oh, just so they're, they're, general they're, problem. Without of, an integrated pro- approach, people can do a little bumper sticker things. Oh, look, it's so cool. I've got the encryption here. Well, so you have the CIO's office saying, well, we're going to focus on encryption. And you have, you know, different agencies saying we're going to move out on different initiatives. Uh, and I think the OPM hack and other things show that it, it leaves massive holes in the middle. Oh, yeah. Where the, 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 no, no foreign nation is stealing data en route from an American uh, uh, consumer to an American website. That's that's nuts. Uh, uh, that's only – maybe there's some lawful uh, access, wiretap orders, a few, uh, and the rest of it is uh, people hacking in uh, from foreign governments to the server or to the individual, and they, they can see that perfectly well, however much SSL you use. So I think that if, if there's going to be table pounding about anything, it's first – make all the fixes in the binding operational directive from DHS and OMB, then worry about putting yeah, SSL is, on your is, public websites. Is, you, know, I, I, you kind of wonder where the hell the CIO was on the OPM hack. Uh, they could have done some something useful there. This is just pure symbolism. Uh, it's a way of saying it's, it's, it's a signal, I think, that we're with the companies and the EFF that are trying to make SSL ubiquitous. Uh, um, Contrary to the interests of law enforcement, by and large, uh, and so it's a it's a signifier, but it's uh, you know, useless operationally. And it and it just it it I think it frustrates everybody because it frustrates the as you said it's, it frustrates the end users and and the people who have to implement this because it's not necessarily going to give you great benefit, and it's frustrating law enforcement because it's contrary to potentially contrary uh, to a message that they're carrying again. How do we, t- how does the government tie this together into an integrated approach 
They're never going to do that. They, the, the reason they haven't tied it together into an integrated approach is because the CIO and the FBI will never agree on this issue. <laughs> so this is my, That's my prediction, uh, Jim. You, <laughs> you don't have to confirm that or deny it. <laughs> so, and I am the official tilting at windmills member of the, That's of right. the group. That's so. right. You're, you're, you're there believing in good government, uh, and God bless you. Uh, okay. Um, speaking of good government, the FISA court has decided that uh, good government does not require that it get an amici assistance you know, basically to wake up in the morning and drink a cup of coffee. Uh, uh, they, uh, they were asked the question, uh, can we continue, can, will you continue to issue orders for six months, uh, uh, despite the fact that the USA Freedom Act uh, passed? The reason that, that they thought this was just a, the equivalent of drinking coffee when you get out of bed is the law that was passed, the USA Freedom Act, makes it clear that, that it's not going to change the rules for six months. And so the court uh, looked at that and said, this is so dead easy. We don't, it, it's a significant issue, but not one that requires us to get an amicus. Uh, my guess is one of the considerations there that they didn't talk about is it would have taken two months to pick an amicus, get them cleared, get them to write a brief, uh, maybe six. Uh, and so uh, effectively that would have been deciding not to decide the issue in the in in the uh, a relevant period of time, so uh, it's an interesting uh, story, but not a uh, uh, not necessarily uh, something that tells us much about where the court is going to be. Uh, at least that's I don't know, Michael. Did you uh, have a different view on that? No, I, th- I thought the same. It, you know, it, I think it's, it is clear what Congress's intent was with the USA Freedom Act, but I must say it, it uh, achieved that intent in a rather circuitous manner. The language is just really uh, unclear, and I think that that's what actually created a little opening for people to argue that, hey, there, there's a real legal issue here about uh, the meaning of the act, and so you shouldn't appoint an amicus. But um, I don't think anybody has any real doubt about what, Congress was trying to achieve with its, you know, what is it, night? I forget how long it is, but it's it's a very long and very convoluted statute that was trying to achieve a pretty simple thing. Yeah, it's, I, I, I forget how many pages it is, because uh, yeah, they had all that uh, weird stuff about uh, nuclear uh, um, uh, regulation. Uh, uh, but I actually, I did think, you know, buried in the opinion, there was kind of a hint that um, the court said, you know, we've been calling for amici for, you know, hundred a uh, hundred years or, or more. Uh, the federal courts have. We don't really quite need as much help as the Congress seems to have provided, especially if it's going to get in the way, so that it's really not an amicus but uh, something else. Uh, um, a, so I thought there was a there was a certain asperity to the courts tone in evaluating the amicus provision that the uh, uh, that Congress had drafted. Uh, um, uh, I don't know, Jim, you used to w- work with those judges all the time. You're certainly welcome to comment, but if it will get you in trouble, you don't need to. Uh, I think I'll stick with no comment on that one, yeah. So. <laughs> All right. Uh, um, uh, Michael, I see that uh, Sony is still at risk of getting sued in the class action uh, by its employees who say that uh, their data was exposed because of the negligence of the company. Uh, uh, is there broader significance to the uh, the decision? Yeah, the court in this in this case uh, really went against the grain and found that the, uh, the Sony employees had standing to sue, even though there was no 
allegation that their identities had been stolen or that there was any other concrete harm. Uh, it was just that they had, uh, in the court's view, a, a legitimate impending fear of or a fear of impending harm, uh, and that that's enough under the Supreme Court's Clapper decision, which really the, the vast majority of uh, other courts that have considered this standing question have gone the other way. So I think it's a little bit of an outlier, uh, much to Sony's dismay. Yeah, it's interesting that, you know, the, the, there was a lot more harm, although you maybe can't, um, evaluate it. Uh, I mean, it's not like they had a few pieces of personal information. They had their emails, um, exposed. And thank you, WikiLeaks. Now they've put another quarter million, uh, documents up in searchable form so that if you have somebody who worked at Sony whom you don't like, you can, uh, collect all of their emails now, uh, from the relevant period. Uh, um, and, and that does feel like a harm that is hard to, uh, um, it, it may be hard to value, but it's pretty serious, and maybe that was influencing the court. Yeah, maybe, maybe that was there in the background. I mean, I don't, I don't think that was the, the core of the, the decision. It was really about the, you know, the, the, the fear of identity theft rather than uh, that people were made to look uh, foolish or were embarrassed by their emails being revealed. Well, I, I thought it was interesting that WikiLeaks, you know, uh, uh, hates to uh, 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 Sony so much, uh, uh, and uh, that it would do that. Uh, and I thought, uh, uh, for those of you who are uh, aficionados of hypocrisy, the great uh, privacy campaigner Jake Applebaum, one of the Snowdenista uh, quote-unquote journalists, uh, uh, tweeted that he's really hoping that all those uh, uh, OPM files will be uh, put up on WikiLeaks. So he's basically begging the Chinese to use their uh, intelligence capabilities to harm American uh, uh, citizens uh, uh, and wreck their privacy, uh, all in the name, I guess, of privacy and human rights. Uh, um, uh, so that's uh, – uh, and Glenn Greenwald, uh, this is one last breaking story. Uh, GCHQ apparently felt it needed to get a warrant to reverse engineer Kaspersky's uh, antivirus software. Uh, uh, and Glenn Greenwald purports to be shocked that um, uh, GCHQ would think that a Russian antivirus company might be a legitimate target for uh, uh, intelligence gathering uh, and shocked that uh, you can get a warrant to break into people's houses, wiretap their communications. But copyright to invade copyright it's just so shocking and that's the the gist of his story which i i guess is him carrying water for kaspersky and the russians uh uh and given jake applebaum's uh, enthusiasm for the chinese uh, hack uh, uh it's becoming clearer and clearer what side these guys are on well unfortunately for jake applebaum and for better or for worse i think the chinese have more nefarious uh uses in mind for my SF-86 information yeah, and, and all of yours uh, <laughs> than simply putting it out uh, uh, on WikiLeaks for everybody to see. Yeah, I, I, that does raise a question. Uh, has, uh, it seemed to me, and, uh, Jim, uh, that the big worry about the SF-86 uh, database is not that we need uh, uh, credit monitoring, but that we need uh, advice on counterintelligence uh, uh, approaches, uh, which is certainly the bailiwick of the FBI. And I wondered whether the FBI is planning to give people whose SF-86s were exposed 
counterintelligence advice about what to do if they or the contacts that they've mentioned uh, end up pressured and how to recognize that that's what's going on. So, I, first of all, obviously I can't comment on the uh, investigation itself. Uh, obviously, the FBI is looking at and concerned about this issue from a 360-degree perspective and trying to figure out exactly how whatever data was taken, how that data could be used against Americans uh, in a variety of different ways, both from the sort of traditional ways that uh, uh, personally identifiable information is used and misused and, and so on, and then with respect to the kinds of issues you're talking about. So we're, we're definitely looking at it from a from a 360 view. Yeah. I, it, it seems to me that uh, this is the first uh, hack where you really needed to give people advice about uh, the uh, counterintelligence uh, implications. Obviously, you have to make an attribution uh, or at least a, a, a potential at, uh, attribution, but uh, um, I, I think we're going to see more of those. Uh, in fact, going back and looking at the Anthem hack, which also has been widely attributed to the Chinese, it uh, really raises the question whether we should be doing something rather different when we think it's a foreign government that's stolen information about Americans than we do when we think it's just some uh, uh, credit card gang. Again, it raises complicated issues. I can't comment on the attribution right now, but uh, we definitely need to think uh, about these kinds of issues in a in a better way as a country. Because uh, you know, with with the amount of data data that's being stolen, not only about federal employees but about all Americans every single day, uh, it's it's a crisis. Yeah, it's a crisis. So last uh, last topic before we get to the interview, I I just couldn't couldn't resist uh, pointing out that the Financial Services Oversight Subcommittee in the House uh, held a hearing. Uh, uh, about uh, attacks on uh, U.S. banks, and large chunks of the hearing were devoted to uh, talking about uh, hacking back. I was nowhere in the the room, I, I, and, and yet enthusiasm was expressed for hacking back by at least two of the witnesses, uh, uh, Michael Maiden and uh, Frank Salufo. Uh, uh, the chairman said, ah, I'm not sure I'm... Uh, Quite ready to uh, uh, to buy into that, but uh, uh, it's pretty clear that uh, the Justice Department's efforts to uh, uh, smother this debate are are not working. There's the, there's a ground fire of interest in in hacking back, and uh, I I know what the FBI's view on that is. They've got a law and they're going to enforce it. But uh, uh, I would like to that uh, uh, you're welcome to uh, uh, speak to that, Jim, if you'd like. Well, hacking back or whatever phrase you want to use to describe it, offensive uh, cyber operations or, or whatever, uh, raises a whole range of legal policy and operational issues that we need to think about clearly and soberly as a, as a country and as a, uh, as an agency, as an executive branch. And whether it is appropriate in any particular circumstance or not is uh, is something that you have to sort through all those different complicated issues in order to assess the costs and benefits of doing something like that. And so, um, anyway, I think I'll I'll leave it. Yeah, at that. no, I, yeah. I completely agree. This is this is a hard issue. I think that the CSIPs and the criminal division have uh, uh, done us a disservice by treating it as an easy question on both policy and legal grounds. Uh, and uh, um, they'll have to eventually uh, step back from that because it, there are too many, too many resources tied up in private response to just say, oh, they can't be used in any investigative capacity outside the network of the, of the victim. Uh, uh, we need to use those resources 
to start tracking the, the, the attackers so that we can bring to bear uh, more appropriate governmental authorities uh, on them. But uh, uh, we didn't uh, uh, bring you here to debate uh, Hackback. <laughs> I'm sure be relieved to hear about. Uh, but I do want to ask about um, the topic that has been most associated with the FBI, uh, and that's the going dark debate, which ties into it, uh, encryption, things that have been called Kalia 2. They're all a little different, but uh, it reflects a kind of second generation of technological angst for the Bureau, the first one being cell phones and uh, digital communications, which uh, led to Kalia. Um, and I thought I'd just ask you uh, to address that, and in particular, you know, it's pretty clear that um, the legislative and the administration climate for a, a major piece of legislation addressing this is not good. Uh, it wasn't great in 92, 93, 94, but it ended up, uh, you know, a bill ended up passing. I'd say it's worse now. Um, and yet um, Jim Comey has been um, willing to raise it over and over again. Uh, and I guess my question is, where do you see this debate ending? Uh, I, If I could predict that, uh, then uh, <laughs> I, I don't know what I would do. Um, that's a tough question to answer where it will all go. I think what we're trying to do is simply to put folks on notice that there is a significant problem. Mm -hmm. I'll talk about that in a second. And then to ask for help. That's really what we're trying to do. The, the problem is, okay, so, you know, we're the Federal Bureau of Investigation, and we do investigations, and we do investigations to uh, enforce the criminal laws of the United States and to protect the country from domestic mm -hmm. and foreign threats, et cetera, right? For decades, for decades, electronic surveillance has been an important investigative tool to help us achieve those ends of protecting the country and, and enforcing the law. And what we're telling folks is, today... That tool is substantially less effective than it was before, and that we, therefore, have to do other things to try to uh, move our investigations forward. That doesn't mean that, in, that we don't do electronic surveillance. Of course, we do electronic surveillance. But it increasingly is a, is a less effective tool. That's really what we're just trying to say with mm -hmm. respect to this, and that at the end of the day, this is about capabilities. It's not about us trying to seek new authorities. We're not trying to come up with some new type of... Uh, authority to get data or to uh, obtain the content of communications. That's not what this is about. This is about when we have an order that we've obtained through the existing processes, either Title III on the criminal side, FISA, whatever it is, uh, that we increasingly cannot effectuate that order. So we've jumped through all the hoops that the law requires us, including probable cause. We show up with the order. And then we can't get the fruits of the surveillance. And the the reason you can't get it, it's probably a mix. But uh, in some cases, the communication is occurring over a, uh, a, a channel that isn't subject to Kalia, uh, doesn't have a wiretap capability built in. It's not that uh, it couldn't be wiretapped with enough code writing, but it, it hasn't been. And in other cases, people have either built in deliberately end-to-end -end encryption so they can't get in, or they simply are carriers and the uh, individual who's communicating has uh, uh, used end-to-end -end encryption. Have you actually seen people using end-to-end -end encryption in ways that defeat uh, your, uh, your wiretap capabilities? 
Using it, yes. Okay. Yes, they're using it. Okay. To the to what extent they're intentionally using it ah, is an okay. open is a matter open to discussion. So SSL, some, you just get right if you if you go to a website that has HTTPS and enabled, you're just going to get it. You don't even know whether it's happening or not, right? I guess that's right. But but increasingly, we see we we see people people being targets of investigations intentionally using end-to-end applications or other services that are end-to-end encrypted, and they seem to know about it, and they do it intentionally. Okay. So that is increasingly a problem. But, the, but what you put your finger on, though, I think a second ago, is, is really right in that modern communications are, are varied, they're complex, they're different, and so the reasons we can't get these communications vary from time to time. Right. But one of the things is, put aside encryption, forget that for a minute, networks just aren't provisioned. They're not built often to allow for a surveillance capability if these entities are not covered by CALEA. So we show up with our order, and they can't do it, or they can't do it quickly, or they can only do it partially. Um, and even even when they're trying, and you know, with uh, with good faith and, and best efforts and so on, because it's just complicated. They didn't they didn't build the the network. They didn't build the uh, the service with a surveillance solution in mind. Well, you know, the apps that that we all download onto our uh, phones are often written by one guy, you know, after school. I, uh, these are not big corporate efforts. Uh, and so it wouldn't be surprising if uh, once he's finished making the uh, uh, the app and adding encryption, it doesn't occur to him to add a mechanism for doing uh, uh, wiretaps because He's not focused on criminals using his uh, his uh, his app, and, and and we we want you know we we support innovation, we support the competitiveness mm-hmm. of American companies. Uh, it, we know that they operate in a global marketplace. We know that they have competitors and uh, users, customers, regulators overseas, and that they have to factor all that into their into their thinking. Whether it's a big company coming up with some new, some new service, or whether it's the the guy in the in the basement or in the garage. Uh, coming up with a brand new thing that that takes off like wildfire. So you know we get that. The 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 all we're just trying to say is, given all that, and in light of those other values, there is the value of public safety. And how do we reconcile the the very important values of competitiveness, innovation, free expression, privacy, etc., with what we think the public expects us to do, which is protect the public safety. At the end of the just at the end of the day, look we're. We're here. We will use the tools that Congress gives us, but we need to be – we feel it's our obligation to tell Congress and, and the American people what the flaws are with the tools that we have today. So what um, what do you say? Because this time all of those warnings have rea- resulted in a very almost antibody allergic reaction to say, no, building in – Access for law enforcement uh, is building in a security flaw that will uh, inevitably be misused, even if the government ma- never misuses it. Uh, um, so it's become almost a, a matter of pride for people who are putting together applications to say, I'm not going to put in uh, law enforcement access uh, because I believe it's uh, contrary to the security of my users. So. I, we've heard that argument many times. We understand it. We get that. We want communications to be secure. We want our data to be secure. We want people to use good encryption mm-hmm. and all the, the the kinds of threats that we talked about a few minutes ago with respect to all the data being being stolen on a regular basis. So 
okay, we understand that, but there's this other value of public safety, and then how do we reconcile the two? We don't have the answer. These are hard things to reconcile. They're very hard. That's why we're out here talking about it. We're we're trying to engage in dialogue wherever we possibly can. We're looking for smart people to try to think through these problems because it it is an issue. It is a problem. And, you know, I've said before that, you know, the Fourth Amendment protects us against unreasonable searches and seizures. And the way we're going now is that technology is going to protect us against all searches and seizures. And is that really what we want when it comes to dealing with our adversaries, when it comes to dealing with enemies on the battlefield, for example? That's really what we're talking about in part. When it comes to violent criminals, when it comes to child predators, the whole range of threat actors that we have to deal with. Um one of the questions that occurs to me in this context, uh, and it's similar to the debate we had over encryption, I mean, this debate actually did occur when Kalia, as you remember, when Kalia was uh, being uh, put forward, uh, uh, and uh, uh, the FBI and the Justice Department agreed to a compromise at the time that says we will require telephone service to be accessible, and we will say nothing. We're not trying to regulate encryption in any way, and that's part of Kalia today. Uh, everybody said, oh, that's great. We're going to put encryption on everything. And as soon as they did that, they discovered that foreign governments were much less enthusiastic about encryption even than the U.S. government. And with the U.S. government receded, allowed a lot of good encryption to be exported, and uh, um, we started seeing much more aggressive enforcement of laws in places like China and uh, Russia, France, uh, and elsewhere uh, designed to say, well, you're not going to bring that crypto in here unless you've got a mechanism for giving us access. Do you see um, the same kind of activity with respect to the whole going dark phenomenon? Do you expect that uh, it may actually turn out to be bad for U.S. companies to uh, draft uh, um, these, uh, to create products that are completely un- uh, accessible to all governments, including the governments of other countries? So this is an international issue. And as I said, the companies, we know they operate in a global marketplace and they've got to confront these issues uh, in a variety of different ways because different countries think about this in different ways and they've taken different approaches to try to deal with that. So we're very much involved in the debate about what's happening internationally and looking for ways to, to deal with that. You know, there are countries where uh, you know, allies that are having this problem um, and experience in, well, experience it in an even more acute way in many ways. Right? Prime Minister Cameron came here and lobbied the president on your behalf, as far as I could tell, uh, uh, saying we we cannot be in a situation where we have lawful authority and we can't get access. And uh, I actually thought it probably made it. A, a real impact on the president who uh, uh, made some statements that are as close to endorsing the FBI point of view as he's ever made in the context of that uh, uh, that press conference. Well, we think there's a general recognition that there's a problem, although I hear often that people still doubt it and question us. And, okay, that's good. I mean, you should doubt and question your government. We, un- we understand that. We, f- we know it's our obligation to explain that, that this is a problem. You know, every day we confront this in one way or another, and this being the inability to get the full uh, content, if you will, of what it is we're authorized to get under law. It seems to me it's a little – there's a certain catch-22 element to this. The people say – the people who are your critics say, uh, well, you haven't shown us a case where um, encryption has actually prevented you from – 
convicting somebody. Um, and that means, of course, if you find a way around the encryption, uh, uh, either by hacking the phone or by uh, building a whole set of uh, uh, other evidence, uh, they say, see, you didn't really need to get into the encryption. And if you don't, well, they don't know that the guy's guilty, so they, that's really not proof that you had a problem either. Right? Uh, so it's it's actually not clear to me how you would satisfy the critics. It's a challenge. That 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 is a challenge, and I and I think we need to to do a better job explaining it because there are people who still question this, and so we need to confront that and deal with it head on. Look, as I said earlier. FBI agents, you know, it's an amazing organization and people are extremely resourceful. And so if they find an obstacle, they're going to find a way to deal with the situation. So the electronic surveillance is an important investigative tool. It's not the only investigative tool. And so we'll use other tools. We'll do all kinds of, you know, whether it's a human source, analysis of metadata that's not encrypted, whatever it may be. We're going to try to, to achieve our object, objectives about protecting the country regardless of what obstacles you know stand in the way and if this is one of them well it'll it'll slow us down it might make us less effective there's going to be cost to that and that's what we want to tell people and, and make sure that 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 congress and the american people have a sober view of what it is they're doing when they try to reconcile these various values. I think that makes sense, and I, I, I have always interpreted uh, your campaign on this as uh, uh, preparation of the battlefield. For most Americans, this isn't going to become a real issue until they actually see a, an investigation they care about thwarted by uh, uh, new technology and encryption in particular. Uh, uh, and that's when people will rec- wake up and say, wow, so this really is having an impact. And having made your case now allows you to uh, actually uh, take advantage of that in a way you couldn't if you decided to make your case only when that happened. So, so I've been talking a lot as much as I can about going dark as a problem. Uh, for many years, I've talked about cyber as a problem that I think was the, the, the cyber threats that we were talking about before. I've spoken publicly about that in terms of, you know, we're yeah, just, and, we're and, just and, not and recognizing. Yeah, OPM seems to be the, the wake-up call. No no comment about that. <laughs> um, they're, they're um, for the country, uh, it's, it's, you know, it's 2 o'clock in the afternoon. The wake-up call <laughs> should have happened a long time ago. <laughs> oh, that's right. So, okay, so yeah. we're, we're way past what uh, a wake-up call on, on the cyber we're, threat. We're rivaling teenage boys for our ability to sleep in. <laughs> but, but as, you know, just to go back, and you mentioned my uh, work at uh, Office of Intelligence Policy and Review before, I mean, as someone who held a position of responsibility on 9-11 and before 9-11, um, you know, I learned a lot of lessons from that. And one of them is that I, when there are threats and when I see things happening, I feel personally the need to speak out, and I think the organization feels that need too. There are threats that the people need, that the public and the Congress need to know about. We need to tell folks about that um, and try to do the best we can to uh, reconcile all of the uh, different competing interests that I've talked about. You know that that make us a great country and to live in a way that's consistent with American values. Yeah. Rec- I, recognizing that we fa- that we're in a dangerous world. I, I, I it, it, it's striking how well I, I was in New York this weekend with an eight-year-old grandson. Um, 9/11 was just history to him. People who are voters today, 21-year-old, 22-year-old, 23-year-old, uh, didn't 
experience 9-11 as something that they should have thought about ways to prevent. It's, it's just part of their, their personal history. Uh, um, and increasingly, uh, uh, the world is divided between people who felt some sense of responsibility of protecting the country on that day and uh, people who didn't, uh, it, uh, for whom uh, uh, the measures that we put in place are oppressive government. And, uh, you know, you have to take your shoes off and you can't have liquids. Uh, I, and uh, uh, we're, we're facing a choice between whether we're just going to drop some of those lessons or uh, continue to apply them. And, and to try to figure out what exactly are the lessons to learn and look at and pretend to, to know all the lessons that, that need to be learned from events like that. But uh, what I'm saying now is that, that there are threats, uh, there are gaps, and uh, we need to think deeply about what we're going to do about that because we, as a co- we collectively as a society are going to face the repercussions if something bad does happen, God forbid. We don't want that to, so that's why we're out talking about it now, not waiting around for something that's, bad to happen. You know, that's, that, that's, um, I, I feel the same way. I, I felt some, uh, I, some responsibility for uh, the, the wall and enthusiasm for the wall uh, in the 90s and a recognition that it was politically necessary to have the wall uh, because of the privacy uh, climate that we uh, faced uh, the last time we had a uh, Republicanism power uh, in Congress with a second term Democratic president, which is when privacy really gets uh, uh, sticky. Uh, uh, and I, I had my doubts, but I didn't say anything. And uh, I kind of always have regretted that. And that's one reason I'm as uh, vocal as I can, uh, as I am about some of the privacy uh, uh, mistakes we're making, uh, because they are going to lead us to trouble. Uh, and uh, this time, if that happens, I don't want to feel responsible. And I, I, I think that there are folks in the Bureau who feel the same way. We want to protect privacy. We're, we're all about that. <laughs> we enforce laws all the time to protect privacy. We want to, uh, we will, and uh, we will always operate in a manner that's consistent with the Constitution and laws, as I said before. Uh, but there are threats, and we need to figure out how to deal with them in an effective way. So let me ask you about one other area where the FBI took some some uh, heat recently, which was uh, attribution of the Sony attack to North Korea. Uh, I think uh, uh, the Bureau was sort of surprised it attributed the attacks quite quickly to uh, uh, North Korea, much faster than we've attributed any Chinese uh, attacks to China. Uh, and... The reaction was to say, oh, that's probably wrong. You know, it could have been uh, an inside job. It could have been Russians. Uh, um, lots of cybersecurity people um, came out of the woodwork to come up with alternative theories and to mock the uh, uh, the FBI. Uh, I think that diminished some when it became clear that the NSA and others had been involved in, uh, in the attribution. But I wonder for the future what you're going to be doing about attribution, how you can deal with the fact that there's this profound skepticism on the part of a lot of Americans to almost anything the government tells them. Well, we have to, we have to explain what it is that we're doing, explain what our evidence shows to the extent we can without compromising sources and methods, right? And so... I think often people think that attribution is some type of magical process. It's very much just like any other type of investigative activity. You have a a bad thing that occurred, a crime or something. Uh, You have a crime that occurred, let's say, 
a bank robbery, and you try to figure out, well, who done it? Right. And so you look at all the available evidence. Means, motive, opportunity. All kinds of, yeah. exactly, all kinds of every, uh, different things. You triangulate that with, with other folks, you, intelligence community, wherever it be, may be that, that has information about it, you think deeply about it, and you make an assessment. Um, and, and so that's what it is. Sometimes the evidence is stronger than other times, and if it's strong enough, it's hard to quantify that exactly. If it's strong enough, then you can make a determination about attribution. If not, then you would hesitate to do that, or you would say that you, you know, would assess that the attribution was of a lower level of, uh, of, uh, of, uh, what I'm, word I'm looking for, you know, of certainty. Right. Right. So you're going to get the chance to do that, I predict, in the context of the, uh, uh new OFAC sanctions program on people who hack, uh, uh, and steal, uh, trade secrets on behalf of commercial uh, competitors, um, and I'm enthusiastic about the sanctions program in the abstract. Uh, um, we really have to do a good job. Uh, the, the Treasury can look at classified information. They don't have to reveal it, uh, um, but I expect that the Bureau and other parts of the intelligence community understand that those first few sanctions cases had better be airtight from an attribution point of view because uh, they're going to get a lot of scrutiny and if there's a doubt about those uh, it'll it'll harm the whole uh, uh, effort yeah i think it's, it's it's important we think about this a lot in a variety of different contexts to make sure that you're thinking deeply about the case that you've got in front of you and then also about the larger implications of that from a more strategic perspective. So I, I, I agree with you in the terms of um, making those kinds of cases or really any high profile case where uh, in the cyber world where attribution is a significant question. All right. Anything else? Uh, we're coming to the end of our uh, uh, program, but uh, do you have any speeches or any other topics you want to talk about? No. Thank you for the opportunity. It's great to be here. Oh, it, it's it's great to have you. Uh, uh, we've been crossing paths in this field since uh, 92, I think, uh, uh, and occasionally on the same side, too. <laughs> uh, uh, so uh, thank you so much for coming uh, uh, and giving uh, you know a tinge of um, restraint and moderation to the Baker name in uh, national security. <laughs> Uh, and I want to thank Mike Vadis and Alan Cohn as well for joining us. Uh, as a reminder, the Cyber Law Podcast is now open to feedback. Uh, uh, send uh, uh, your suggestions to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com or leave a message at 202-862-5785. Uh, Jim, I will recognize your voice if you call anonymously. Uh, uh, this has been Episode 72 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Next week, we'll be joined by Rob Kanaki. Senior Fellow for Cyber Policy at the Council on Foreign Relations and a former White House official uh, on cyber. Uh, coming soon, we've got... Uh Paul, Michael Casey and Paul Vigna of the uh, Wall Street Journal. Annie Anton and Peter Swire, the cyber power couple from the Georgia Institute of Technology. And uh, on June 25, uh, for those of you uh, um, who can join, we're going to host a free webinar called Digitizing Financial Services in Europe which will look at the business impact of digitized financial services uh, uh, across Europe uh, with speakers from the European Commission, financial industry, and our Brussels office. And we hope you'll join us next week as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.